Please turn with me in the Scriptures to Luke 18. Luke 18. Well, just about every parent can recall the way they felt in the hours and just short days immediately following the birth of their first child. Note, first child. And there's some even here this morning. I think two of the four represented standing up here, no doubt, are feeling this in recent days. There's oftentimes that tense and uneasy and skittish and fearful, sometimes even paralyzing feeling that descends on a couple shortly after the miracle of childbirth takes place and the reality begins to set in that all these wonderful, helpful nurses are not coming with them. (laughs) They are alone. And this little creature that looked like an alien just a few hours ago is up to them to keep alive. And the reality of that, that this little child can do absolutely nothing but display its neediness, but cry out for help. Many things have changed from the ancient world in which Jesus lived compared to our present day. But something related to this Reality, the impact of the firstborn child and the the weight of responsibility, no doubt this is felt and has been felt throughout the ages. Well, in Jesus' day, as in ours, babies, infants, small children, they represent neediness. They represent a living soul at its most vulnerable, desperate phase of existence. And this reality is something Jesus really wants His disciples, and by extension, us today, to grasp when we consider what entrance into the kingdom of God is all about. In addition to the neediness that infancy represents, young children often have a way of asking profound questions, but in blunt and sometimes unsophisticated ways. And in its own way, this is a gift from God to us that think we can graduate beyond sometimes those blunt but profound questions. Daddy, how do we actually know the Bible's true? Mommy, why did Jesus have to die? Grandpa, Why does hell exist if God loves everybody? Grandma, will God still let us have tea parties in heaven? (laughs) Profound questions. I know of situations where God has used simple, profound questions from children to draw even adults to saving faith or to prick the conscience of unbelievers on matters of weighty and eternal significance. This is similar to what Jesus wants to draw out from Luke chapter 18. We find this same story in all Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all have, in essence, the same story with just a few slight changes. We are considering Luke's account here this morning. So follow along as I read these three verses, verses 15 through 17 of Luke 18. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him 
saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. This is the living and abiding word of the Lord. Let's pray, asking its full impact upon our hearts and lives this morning. Father, we come to you oftentimes wrangling, as the disciples did, wondering who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And silly questions like that. And our own egos and self-aggrandizing assessments of who we think we are begin to stray from the ongoing perpetual lesson children are to us that our Lord uses many times to draw us back to the humility and the desperate, helpless condition that is the only way anyone enters the kingdom of God. Help us to be humbled by this familiar text to many of us and help us to see it in, with new eyes in a fresh way, our need to come before you as your children. Thank you for adopting us into your family. Thank you that we can hear your call to worship. We can see the holiness of our Father, the provision of your grace in Christ. We can confess such grace as only found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can be assured that you intend to feed us around your word. We pray you'd fill us up this morning for your glory and our joy. Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, very simply this morning, the main idea is quite evident from these verses. Entrance into the kingdom of God requires dependent, childlike faith. We'll return to this sentence several times, but let it just be etched into your thinking. This is what Jesus intends to convey here, we believe. Entrance into the kingdom of God requires dependent, childlike faith. Now, as we examine the context of this passage before us, it's important to get our bearings as to where this little three-verse event is situated. Since chapter 9, we see Luke has been slowly moving the reader through Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem. As early as chapter 5, Luke writes that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And on they went, entering village after village and sending out messengers right and left to proclaim the kingdom of God. And resolved to proclaim the nature of the kingdom, Jesus expounds in many different directions throughout Luke's gospel on who will receive entrance and what kind of person will inherit God's kingdom. It looks like, as Luke will want to point out, a persistent widow who exemplifies unceasing prayer. It looks like a healed leper who exemplifies grateful thanksgiving. It looks like shrewd men and women. The passage Paul preached last week with that image of a dishonest manager who leverages material wealth in ways to secure eternal riches. It looks like those who admit that they are like lost sheep or a lost coin, 
or lost sons and daughters in desperate need of a father's forgiveness and pursuing love. And so on and so forth, as Jesus proclaims through various images and stories the nature of the kingdom, especially, especially in contrast to the Pharisees and religious rulers of the day who had turned these kingdom values completely upside down and had reworked doctrines such that they can peddle it as the commandments of God when it is little more than the traditions of men. Jesus intends to take a sledgehammer to those misconstrued ideas of His kingdom. Many commentaries will include this short episode that we've read this morning and of Jesus' encounter with children with the preceding story of the, of the Pharisee and the tax collector in verses 9 through 14, a, a passage that we considered just a few months back on a Sunday morning. And the point that Jesus makes there is how God really despises the self-righteous spiritual acting of the Pharisee in that story, while declaring righteous the humble, contrite spirit of the corrupt tax collector. So in this parable, humility is the prerequisite for entrance into God's kingdom. Humble recognition of one's sinfulness before God and the need to call out for mercy. God's kingdom is filled with people like this. So in a similar way, Jesus' encounter with children underscores this very same theme. The necessity of humility and desperate dependence on God as the essential foundational reality every one of us, whether you've known Christ for a day or 50 years, the essential foundational reality everyone must embrace to enter God's kingdom. So very simply, we see in verse 15, access denied by the disciples. Now they were bringing even infants, the text says, to him that he might touch them. So here, parents bringing infants to Jesus for blessing. Most likely that word they indicates parents, not just maybe concerned mothers. And no doubt there's a mixture here of just the the masses that have assembled. But they are flocking with their young children so Jesus might touch them. Matthew's account of the story reads that Jesus might lay hands on them and pray. A little more detail for us. So, for what purpose, though, exactly? For healing? Does this indicate that they're longing for Jesus' healing touch in light of other children and people who they've heard about that have been healed, even raised from the dead? Perhaps in a day of such a high infant mortality rate, there was great interest in healing for small children in particular who would carry on their hopes and dreams of the future. This is certainly possible, but only Luke's gospel highlights the fact that these children were infants. This is a different word here. Even infants, which more likely indicates Jewish parents' desire for their infants to be blessed by Jesus in a manner very similar to the model we see in Jacob blessing Ephraim and Manasseh and Genesis 48 and many other places throughout the Old Testament where there was an outward 
invocation, as it were, of God's promises and his smile upon those that it would, it would carry on in the life of these young children, carrying on the covenant promises of God. We see in second half of verse 15 that, that when the disciples saw what was going down, they did not like it. They rebuked them. So for unknown reasons, really, Jesus' disciples, they were not having any of it. They rebuked these parents and their children, which is not this, oh, I'm so sorry, the park is closed for the day. Come back during normal operating hours. We'd love to see you tomorrow. That was not the Spirit. That is not. The word literally means to express strong disapproval or to denounce or to command or to give a a stern warning. So why such a strong reaction? By the disciples. Well, maybe they feared the effects of the crowd on Jesus' relentless requests. Maybe it was what the sports world likes to call load management. You know, he's been going through a lot, so we're going to let him sit out a game. Maybe it was this fear of Jesus being overworked or a fear of having his schedule altered or changed. We have to get to such and such, and this will not be helpful for our timeline. Maybe they didn't want this distraction in light of Jesus' path to Jerusalem. Or maybe they just didn't think Jesus needed to busy himself with situations and people as insignificant and unimportant as children. Well, for whatever reasons the disciples had on their minds, maybe some mixture of all of that, Jesus immediately reacts with disgust. The same word that is used of the disciples' reaction when they saw this, Jesus equally drops the hammer. He will have none of it. We see access denied, but then access granted by Christ. He rebukes the disciples. In Mark's account, he says, And when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, the text says. This word indignant is used frequently to describe the reaction of the Pharisees and the scribes to things that Jesus and his disciples would do to upset them. But this is the only time in the New Testament where this word is used to describe the reaction of Jesus himself. Not that he never is angry in other episodes, but for this particular word, there is a a strength here to Christ's reaction. No small reaction by Jesus toward his disciples. He matches their rebuke of the parents with an indignant rebuke of his own. He then calls the children to himself. He calls them with the very tenderness of God. So here is our Savior, tough and then immediately tender. Tough when he needs to be and tender beyond comprehension. What a picture of godliness. What a picture of of manliness. As one author writes, the disciples' foolish gatekeeping allows Jesus to make a crucial point. Infants are models of how the reign of God should be received. Jesus then delivers his teaching on the exemplary nature of children for entering the kingdom. We see second half of 16 and 17 where Jesus 
kingdom truth is now revealed. Let the children come. Do not hinder them, he says. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Children should come to Jesus. Children should come to Jesus. That's a simple statement. But in our world in which children's autonomy has risen, where there is a sense where we cannot do anything to compel or to lead or to draw out the right and appropriate way, Jesus says, no, here is a clear path. They should come to me. They should come unhindered because the kingdom of God belongs to people like them. So kids, all the heads, <laughs> kids, hear Jesus' words here. Hear what He says to you. He's always speaking to you when you hear His voice when the Bible's opened. But in a special, very deliberate, pointed way, He has a message for you. This is God's only Son who left the glories of heaven to be born as a baby, to live, die, and rise for sinners. And this Jesus says, I want you to come to me. It doesn't get any more personal than that, kids. Perhaps you've thought, like I did when I was younger, that living for God was something adults take seriously. It's kind of like finances and money, and it's that stuff that's down the road. We'll get to it. No, Jesus thinks differently. He wants your heart today. Jesus also wants people to know that they better stay out of the way of you coming to Him. Hindrances. If it's friends at school or friends in your neighborhood, even siblings in your own home from time to time, would seek to discourage you from talking to Jesus, praying to Him, learning about Him, loving Him, they'll answer to Jesus for that. So kids, Jesus calls you to Himself. Will you come to Him? Come to Him when you're scared. Come to Him when it's hard to obey. Come to Him when the saddest thing in your whole life just happened to you. Come to Him when you feel embarrassed about how you just acted. Come to Him when you fail at something that you thought you were good at. Come to Him when you feel embarrassed Come to Him when everything in you wants to explode in anger. Come to Him after you've been made fun of by an older kid who you thought was your friend. Come to Him when you fear something that might happen tomorrow. Come to Jesus today and keep coming. Today, tomorrow, and every day following. And all you have to do is recognize you're helpless. And that your only hope is to depend on Him. Well, when Jesus says that the kingdom belongs to little children, this statement all by itself can lead to some interesting conclusions. There's a need for some clarity here. It's here where Baptist theology in particular 
takes a very different path from even gospel-proclaiming Presbyterians or Anglican theology or Lutheran and the like who would read this verse and come to, in slightly different ways, but a general conclusion that infants are welcome, and I should include Roman Catholic Church as well and others, well, they are welcomed by Jesus because they automatically belong to the kingdom of God and the covenant community, the church. They would read these verses and make an assumption that the parents in Luke 18 must be believing Christian parents who are bringing their children to Jesus for blessing, which they believe is now reflected in the modern-day sacrament of baptizing infants, which renders them then full members of the covenant community. As D.A. Carson simply points out here, he says, Jesus does not want the little children prevented from coming to him, not because the kingdom of God belongs to them, but because the kingdom of heaven belongs to those like them, stressing childlike faith. Jesus receives them because they're an excellent object lesson in the kind of humility and faith that he finds acceptable. It's exactly what Justin shared in his, his call to worship, the ongoing perpetual object of sincere faith in the dependence it represents. If this passage were to illustrate for us infant baptism, we would expect to find water present, but we do not. If we are to make the conclusion that paedo-baptists, infant baptizers, make from this passage, we would expect the text to clearly distinguish the faith of the parents involved. This remains unclear. So surely Jesus doesn't want to invite a kind of universal salvation for all children such that the reality of indwelling sin passed on from Adam is nullified in some way. And if this passage were illustrating infant baptism, we might expect repeated clarity in later New Testament epistles about the nature and practice of baptizing infants in this manner. But we do not find such evidence. So rather than commandeering a text in order to steer it where we would like it to end up, and if we allow it to say just what it says without pressing it too far, I think we're left with the simple observation that children entering God's kingdom requires helpless, complete dependence, faith, and trust. There it is. Well, as a point of application for many Christian homes and Christian parents, sometimes there can be the, the puzzling dynamic brought out at different times of how then are Christian families to raise their children if their children are not born as fully participating members of the spiritual community of faith. Unbelievers. How are we to bring up children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord if they are technically not a part of the redeemed family of God? Are they not born in sin and alienated from God and remaining under sin's dominion, dead in trespasses and sin? I recall asking a, a certain professor convinced of you know, the other side that I'm representing here this question, and there was only the response of, we don't know. It's a holy mystery, was his answer. Well, I think we can land a little more squarely where Scripture does. These are true. 
Children are born in sin. So what is their relationship then to the family of God? A few thoughts. First, front row seats matter. Front row seats matter. What do I mean by that? Well, if you've ever attended a game where you've sat in the nosebleed section, just way far away, and then somehow you sat courtside, something I've never done, but I can imagine, (laughs) must be nice, (laughs) you would probably admit there's a huge difference. You don't find the celebrities and everything saying, I just love the nosebleed section. No, there is a different difference there. Well, there is nothing more evangelistically impactful to children than a mother or father who unquestionably live out the truths of Scripture right before them on a daily basis. In Romans, Paul makes clear that the law alone cannot save. So he anticipates the question that some would ask about even the benefit of what's what's even the benefit of being part of ancient Israel. And Paul responds essentially by saying, there is still great benefit. Oh my goodness, there's benefit. To you belong the very promises and oracles of God. God spoke and he gave you front row seats to what he was doing. Right? And even under the old covenant, there was the expectation there must be a new heart. There must be a new heart. In the Bible class on global missions that we've been walking through, we've been considering the lives of various missionaries the past few weeks. And John G. Payton is one that we have considered. Payton, who took the gospel to the cannibals in the New Hebrides Islands, burying his son and wife shortly after arriving, but seeing that entire region of the world eventually transformed through the gospel. Peyton's autobiography recounts the incredibly godly influence of his father and mother. And his words about them are worth the price of the book. Even though he was one of 11 children, his front row seat to their Christian faith dramatically impacted him. As Peyton explains, there was a small room, the closet it was called, where his father would go for prayer, as a rule, after each meal. The 11 children knew it, and they reverenced the spot and hallowed those times when their father would silently retreat from the family to pray. The impact on the family was immense. Peyton would write, he would say this, Though everything else in religion might be swept out of memory, my soul would wander back to those early scenes of that sanctuary closet, hearing still the echoes of my father's cries to God, thinking, he walked with God. Why not I? Later, Peyton would recount walking for miles with his father before he left for college. And one of the most moving stories in missionary biographies anywhere. His father exhorted him on this long two-and-a-half-hour walk with godly wisdom every step of the way before walking the last half-mile in silence. But Peyton notes watching his father's lips constantly moving. 
offering one prayer after another for his son. Finally, his father said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. After they embraced, Peyton walked on until he was too overcome by the emotion of it all. And he darted down an alleyway and sat and cried for a long while. He finally arose and went on his way. And he would later write, reflecting on that moment, he would say this. Through blinding tears, I vowed deeply by the help of God to live and act so to never to grieve or to dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. That's the impact of front row seats. It's the blessing of God. Likewise, Peyton's mother was no exception. She constantly taught her children prayerful dependence on God. And one year, their crops failed while their father was away on work, and their family was short on food. And too proud to let anyone know of their need, Peyton's mother gathered the children for prayer, reassuring them that the Lord would provide. And then when food came the very next day, and seeing the children shocked and surprised, she gathered them together and exhorted them. And she said, Oh, my children, love your heavenly Father. Tell Him in faith and prayer all your needs, and He will supply your needs so far as it may be for your good and His glory. Children who watch normal lives that are dependent on God, who trust Him faithfully, who live for Him unhypocritically, there is no stronger witness. Front row seats matter. Secondly, holy habits shape the heart in preparatory ways. Holy habits shape the heart in preparatory ways. We live in an individualistic culture that says, well, if I don't feel like doing something in the moment, I probably shouldn't do it because after all, if I did something I didn't feel like doing, that would make me a hypocrite, so I'm not going to do it. Some version of that oftentimes is processed. The Lord knows what He's doing when He instructs Christian parents to nurture their children in the admonition of the Lord. The Lord knows the mysterious way in which the Spirit works. It blows wherever it desires in the hearts of men and women, and especially in the hearts of children. The Lord knows His Word will not return void and will accomplish all that He desires. The Lord knows that the ordinary means of grace administered in and through the local church, the preaching of the Word, the singing of the saints, the prayers of God's people, the sacrificial giving to the work of God, the fellowship and edification and building up of the saints, the regular intake of the Scriptures in the home, in the church, this normal stuff does extraordinary things in the hands of an all-knowing God. I once shared my testimony 
which was very similar to, no doubt, some of you coming to faith at an early age, a very early age that I don't have many memories of consciously disbelieving the truths of the gospel. I once shared that story with a missionary, an older missionary, in which I apologized for having a boring testimony. That's what I said. One in which I came to know the Lord very young. And I remember he rebuked me. He called me out quickly for thinking that was a boring testimony. And sharply he said that that was his favorite kind of testimony. Because it's a testament to the faithfulness of God from one generation to the next. So the holy habits of the regular intake of the Word in the home, in the church, these shape and prepare the heart for what the Spirit may do. And we pray to that end. And then thirdly, present Christ Jesus' lordship in every sphere of life. It is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And if the scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation, and if the riches of the glory of Christ in us, the hope of glory, presenting a half gospel that only affects half of life while we live selfishly and sinfully in other ways, tends to do a whole-scale diminishing and rejection of the gospel. As we display before our children the power of the gospel, giving them front-row seats to the work of God in our hearts, being faithful to nurture them through those ordinary means of grace, we must pray fervently and teach faithfully that Jesus Christ rules and reigns and they get a front row seat to the truest way that the world ought to be lived before the face of God. That is powerful. Well, if you're here today and you are holding out on Jesus, no matter your age, consider that image of a helpless infant in Luke 18. Consider the lineup of newborn babies that we saw earlier this morning. Jesus intends for you to see the spiritual picture represented there. Will you lay aside your false delusion of independence and autonomy and instead become like a needy child who knows Jesus is, your, is the only hope for entrance into the kingdom of God. And church family, let us reflect Christ's love for children as a body of believers. Whether you're a parent with kids yourselves, a single person, an empty nester, a teen, or whatever your phase of life, we share responsibility as a church family. This was the very intent and purpose of what took place this morning that there would be a recognition, a spiritual handshake, as it were, that we are covenanting and committing together that the nurture and admonition of the Lord in which we aim to bring these children up is a project we are all invested in. I asked Samson's permission earlier, but I love hearing Samson's story 
If you haven't met Samson, he's one of our student pastors here, and of his first time working in children's church. And it was a little bit shell shock moment for him. And then hearing his, his working his way towards this is, this is vital. This is, this is where the kingdom of God is as needed as anywhere else. And to hear his reflections was a joy. Perhaps you are in a similar place. If you're a parent, are you regularly placing your children in the center of the very place where Christ promises to meet with his people for blessing? The church. Is it clear that Christ and his people are central within your family's lives? Do you regularly talk with your children about even what happens when we gather? It is a good thing, parents, if there's little whispers here and there as you explain things. What is happening right now? And not just assume that everything will just somehow be figured out, but be teaching and training, preparing both before and as is appropriate during and then after. What, is, what goes on when we hear God's voice and when we respond in obedience as the gathered church? Do you talk regularly with the children about the Bible, what you are learning? Are you praying with them? Are you sacrificing your comfort in various ways in order to prioritize as a family attendance where the Bible will be central? Do you model a life worthy of imitation? Right? Do you have skin in the game? Have you prayerfully considered maybe serving more sacrificially in some capacity within the church to help bring the children to Jesus so they see and love Him? Certainly, we live in a culture that, on the flip side, can idolize children and approaches parenting as doing little more than just affirming, never challenging or rebuking or counseling or disciplining. And we should be on guard against that, absolutely. But may we never use that as an excuse for being committed for helping children be brought to Jesus. If we love Christ, we'll love what He loves and we'll hate what He hates. Jesus loves calling children to Himself, and He hates obstacles created to hinder such coming. So may God help us live Christian lives utterly dependent, like an infant, utterly dependent on Christ, longing for His eternal kingdom, and investing our lives in helping little ones taste and see that the Lord is good. For blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Let's pray. Our Lord, we come to You. We recognize there's so much more that could be said. There is a linkage here to all sorts of important, relevant things. And yet, this simple, simple truth that we have a powerful, enduring object lesson in the children among us. That entrance into your kingdom does not look like boasting and being great and earning awards for being the busiest and the best and the most significant or occupying positions of authority and these sorts of things that our world recognizes as greatness. 
Lord, help us. Help those among us today to, be, to see their need. To come in humility. To call out to Jesus. To know His heart towards children is warm and tender. We pray that as a family of faith that we would respond and recognize our own call to be bringing up children among us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, planting seeds that we trust in faith you will use to bring about conversion and faith, and that by, by your grace they would trust in the saving work of Christ. May the, the baton of the gospel not be dropped with this generation. May we be faithful to passing it on, unchanged, for your glory. In Christ we pray. Amen.